and I hope that that gives you some refreshment as we, um, you know, read the stories of the crucifixion and resurrection. So look with me to the book of Luke. We'll be turning into uh, chapter 23, uh, verses 26 through uh, 49. Luke 23, uh, verses 26 through 49. Uh, it's a long passage, obviously, the story. Uh, so... Uh, I'll read it for us, and it's a little long, obviously, but um, just bear with me. I think it's good to have a whole context before we go any further. So, Luke 23, 26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and uh, the wombs that never bore and the breast that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who are criminals were led away to, to be put to death with them. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, uh, there they crucified him. And the criminals one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is a Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, and coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminal, criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And it was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a, stood at a distance watching these things. That is God's word. Um, as usual, I'll have three points uh, for us to follow along. Uh, those are the loving warning and the loving sacrifice and the loving offer. And the title for this message is The Loving Savior. First point, the loving warning. Now, verse 28, uh, we read this. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Just to uh, lay down a context here, uh, by this time Jesus was flogged, uh, meaning that he was whipped with hammers that had nails on them, and uh, he was much beaten up, and he was much damaged on the outside, as you can, as you can imagine. And he, did, he is now heading up to the execution site, uh, which is called the skull, uh, or in Latin it's called Calvary. And so people who are watching the whole scene, they're troubled at the sight of Jesus. And we, we here see the women, especially in the midst, were apparently weeping for Jesus you know, out of sympathy and pity. But turning to them, Jesus addresses uh, them gently with the words, daughters of Jerusalem. That's a tender tone there. But he is about to tell them something terrible. So he is telling them to rather weep for themselves, not for him, not for him, but weep for themselves because what he's about to tell them is going to crush them. So verse 29, we read, For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. What this means is that you know, having children normally is a blessing, you know, just as in America, you know, people seek prosperity through having a nice little family, you know, having a little house and, you know, security. And that's a blessing. But here, God is saying that that's a curse. Uh, Jesus is saying that it's a curse on that day of judgment. Because of the terrible judgment, all these nice things will not matter anymore. So we read on. Verse 30, Jesus says, Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. Again, further description of the judgment day. On that day, that judgment will be so terrible that the people will desire to die uh, before the judgment because they are foreseeing what's coming. And they're calling on the nature and the mountains to fall on them so they won't have to face the coming judgment. And I think that may make sense to us, right? I just imagine perhaps 
that you know we are bound up on a cart or something, and we are being led to you know fiery furnace for torture. And we know what's coming. We know the pain and anguish that we will have to endure. And for fear of what we experience, you know, we just want to die right now so we won't have to experience that. That's, that's what's happening here, meaning that the judgment will be that terrible. And of course, uh, in the context, Jesus is talking to the women who are part of the nation of Israel. So he's prophesying what's going to happen to the nation of Israel. In fact, in, in history, in 70 AD, uh, the Romans invade Jerusalem and they totally destroy the city and inflict much pain on the people. So the prophecy was uh, fulfilled. But we um, go beyond that because Luke is telling us this story too, meaning that uh, Jesus is ultimately pointing to the final judgment uh, for all humanity, including you and I, you know, who reject him as their Lord and King. And that judgment is perhaps much more terrible than the description here uh, because the final judgment will be eternal judgment uh, that involve not just body, but it will involve soul and spirit too. So Jesus is declaring right away that the world stands condemned for their sins for not following Jesus as their Lord, and there is impending judgment that's coming. Well, how pleasant uh, in the beginning of the sermon for me to start with this picture. Uh, and in fact, you know, the, the concept of judgment, the reality of what's coming in the future can be offensive in this culture, in our culture right now, uh, and in our city, which is um, perhaps you know, opposed to that kind of notion. You know, people might ask, you know, why would we believe in the eternal judgment and, and hell? You know, shouldn't we just talk about accepting everyone and you know, everyone ending up in a better place after they die? Isn't that more pleasant? Uh, but please remember with me, first of all, in the text, you know, Jesus started this discourse by addressing the woman tenderly, right? The daughters of Jerusalem. Meaning, he's not here to just preach a hellbound sermon. Rather, he's coming from a place of care and concern. Meaning, he is telling them and telling us, uh, you know, these terrible things as a warning for our benefit. So we are ready. And second of all, so, so that's the intent behind Jesus' saying here. But second of all, let's also examine our assumption, our perhaps cultural beliefs. You know, is it really valid you know, for us to believe that you know, there shouldn't be judgment? And that everyone, no matter how they live, no matter how, what they believe, they should go to heaven. That there is always better place reserved for everyone. But let me perhaps challenge us that, that notion because uh, perhaps 
we are always influenced by our surroundings. You know, our belief system, our worldview are always affected by the, the locale, the culture that we live in. Meaning that the, the belief of you know, universal salvation and people you know, will go to heaven no matter what might be affected by American culture that perhaps hasn't experienced what other parts of the world experience. Here's what I mean. Uh, let's for a second transport ourselves to Ukraine right now. If you've been following the news, you know, there have been genocide there, the rape, killing of children, and many other atrocities that are terrible. And if we were to talk to the victims there and, you know, preach the theology of, you know, everyone being accepted, I would think that that notion will not be as popular there as that is here. And in fact, I would assume that it will dishearten them. The reason is this, you know, if you were to, you know, say all, all these things to the victims there, they may respond, you know, are you saying that, you know, those who have done these terrible things to me and to my family, they can get away with what they have done? That there is no judgment? That God will not punish them? There is no accountability? What kind of God is that? Where we live, what we experience, shape what we think. And I'm, again, this can be a challenging thing for many of us living in this culture, but I'm encouraging us to see where we are shaped and how we can be shaped further by the Bible into the right thinking and belief. And the Bible says that there is judgment and that God is God of justice. He will punish injustice and people who do injustice. So if you follow with me, then there has to exist a punishment for injustice. And Jesus is warning them that the judgment is indeed coming. But he also, he also clarifies that this judgment is not just for, you know, people that we think are terrible. He's also saying that this judgment is for all sinners apart from Christ. And truthfully, as far as I know, many of us, if not all of us here in this room, have not murdered, literally. But we do have murderous anger, bitterness, and jealousy inside. And many of us, if not all of us, do not commit, have not committed sexual crimes, but we all try to respect one another. But deep inside, we have lust and essentially use other people as toys for our pleasure. That's what lust does, isn't it? Meaning that we are all sinners. And before the holy God, all these wicked things that are inside of us are tremendously offensive. So apart from Jesus, we are all under the wrath of God. And judgment is coming 
and it, it will be terrible and excruciating. And that's what Jesus is saying here. May we not skip that. It's not, again, pleasant, but that's what he's saying. So loving warning. Second, the loving sacrifice. But from that place of warning and the judgment, in the ensuing story, we find something preposterous, something even scandalous. And that scandal is this, that Jesus takes the judgment that we deserve, that we just described. Well, what's obvious in the story is that Jesus is innocent. He doesn't deserve the punishment. We see that from uh, the declarations of one of the criminals on the cross and also the Roman centurion in the story. They declare that Jesus has done nothing wrong. He's innocent. He should not be getting punished in the story. And yet, as we read along, we see that Jesus goes through what other convicted criminals you know, deserve to go through, even the crucifixion. So let me walk us through what he went through in three aspects. First of all, physical. You know, physically, the crucifixion was by far you know, one of the uh, most inhumane execution methods ever invented in human history. It was excruciatingly painful and brutal. And this one Roman politician named Cicero said that crucifixion was a most cruel and disgusting punishment and that the very mention of the cross should be far removed not only from a Roman citizen's body but also from his mind, his eyes, and his ears. It was that terrible and disgusting to people. And, and here's why. During the tr- crucifixion, uh, you know, the, the criminal would be nailed you know, through their wrists. Uh, I think in the Bible we, we read hand, but it's more of wrists because obviously there are bones that can sustain the nail on the cross. And apparently, medically, that was, that's actually one of the most painful spots you know, to be nailed on. And also, while being hung there, the person's weight would uh, you know, bring, them, bring him down, downward, making him you know, hard to breathe. So he would constantly have to straighten up. And you know, at the time, obviously, there's, I mean, they wouldn't sand the, the wooden beam behind his back. So as he strengthened up, his back would scratch the splinters of the, the wooden beam. Painful. And eventually, the strength would be gone from the person, and he would die. Very brutal execution method. And he, Jesus went through that. And secondly, there's emotional aspect. Uh, you know, we see right away the, the Jewish rulers and the Roman soldiers you know, deriding and mocking Jesus, you know, over and over, and sneering at him. And we read in verse 34, it says, And they cast lots to divide his garments. Now, right away, I think it's a continuation of, you know, them mocking Jesus, right? They're casting lots, they're just gambling on and playing with his clothes. But just think with me what this means. 
what does it mean that they're playing with this clothes? Jesus is naked. They stripped him of his clothes, and some sources say that um, that he might have been wearing a loincloth covering his private parts. But even with that, he's essentially buck naked in a public place. This was a very public place on a hill. There are a lot of people. Just imagine this massive crowd gathering there, watching him buck naked. There's a lot of shame going on here. And that's what Luke wants you to see. And that, that's why crucifixion was so despised at that time because the culture was honor and shame. People would die for honor over shame. But here, the criminals were dangled like an animal. Again, Jesus went through that emotional aspect. And lastly, spiritual. You know, uh, Luke doesn't record this in his, in his book, but in other Gospels, we hear Jesus say on the cross, no, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That means on the cross, God the Father cast Jesus away as if he would cast away sinners from his presence. What that means is Jesus was basically going through hell on the cross because hell is what that is, that you are away from God's presence. You are not getting God's favor but the opposite, pain and shame, the eternal separation from God. And that's what Jesus went through, the crucifixion. What's interesting, what's surprising is that Jesus, even through that pain and shame, he was determined to, to go through that. So look with me in verse 46. It said, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus was, God, this is my mission. I'm going to do this. I'm going to trust you. Here's here's my doing here. I'm going to do it. No turning back. He was going through the, the cross, the Calvary Road. And because Jesus did that, Lastly, we, see, we read in verse 45, it says, While the son's life failed, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Because of what Jesus endured on behalf of the sinners, there is salvation for us. You know, we learn in the, in the book of Ephesians that the temple uh, is God's provision during the Old Testament times, you know, where God would allow himself the holy God would allow himself to meet with sinners uh, with, of course, the provision and uh, requirement of uh, sinners offering sacrifices because with their sins, they could not possibly commune with God. And they had to sacrifice a lot of animals. A lot of blood was shed. But we read that the blood was not enough because they're animal blood. And they're ultimately pointing towards, pointing forward to the blood of Jesus. And when Jesus came, he offered a perfect sacrifice for us so that our sins are imputed to him on the cross and his perfect righteousness, his perfect record and perfect life was imputed to us. 
so that now we can commune with God freely because we are justified. We are clean before God because of Christ. Meaning there's no more need for temple. The Bible, the Ephesians that we've been studying says that we are God's temple. Individuals and the corporate church body of Christ are the temple where we meet with God, we experience God's presence because of Jesus. That's what he did. Because of him, we enjoy his favor and relationship, no longer impending judgment that are terrible that we just saw in the first point. And before we move on, before I share the story with you, uh, I want to ask you this question. Why do you think Jesus went through all this? I mean, we saw that he took it as a mission to go through it and commit it. But what's the ultimate reason why he would, or anybody would do this for sinners? The clue is found in uh, this passage in Matthew. Matthew 23, verse 35 to 38, it says, Jesus saying, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones uh, those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? But you are now willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Just focus with me on that imagery of hen gathering you know, her uh, little, you know, children what what jesus is saying there is you know he you know instructed the woman in the beginning of the story to weep for themselves but here we're seeing jesus weeping himself for the judgment that's coming to jerusalem because he had the motherly fatherly heart towards his people that's the heart that he has for uh, the, the nation of Israel that he, he came to save. And his, you know, his heart is breaking for them. He's weeping. The, the, when, you, when you hear, when you see the, the same word repeating twice, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that's really the emotional uh, plea that he's doing there for us. He's weeping for his children. That's why he died. That's why he came to uh, be punished on the cross for us. The reason was love. Fatherly, motherly love for the sinners. There's a story of a, a young pregnant mom in Korea uh, during a, the Korean War. Her name is uh, Bak Yoon, and uh, she was you know, nine months pregnant. But there was you know, hardly any food because, you know, during the war. And so she was, you know, carrying her heavy body, um, you know, to this missionary's house uh, in Korea uh, to ask for help. And this was winter. Was, I think it's around Christmas time. And it was bitter, cold, and, you know, snowy. And uh, to make matters worse, you know, in the middle of the road, she started feeling the, the birth pain. So she couldn't help but to crawl under the bridge on the way 
and she gave birth to a baby boy there. Again, just imagine just being really cold in the middle of winter. And she did not have any clothes for this newborn child. So she took off her own outer clothes as well as her own padded pants and covered this baby. And as you can imagine, you know, uh, shortly afterwards, she died from the cold and exhaustion from the birth. The next day, the boy was thankfully discovered alive by a missionary named Miss Watson, and the boy grew up under her care. And because you know Miss Watson saw how his mother died, you know she would always remind the boy, saying, um, "You know, your mother had great love for you." She would say that over and over because she saw how she died. And fast forward on on this boy's twelfth birthday the boy visited her mother's grave. Uh, and uh, to uh, Miss Watson's surprise, this boy you know, started taking off his coat and his pants, uh, and he laid them on her grave you know, outdoors in, in the same you know, cold winter. And the story ends with this line, quote, Then he cried out to the mother he never knew, saying, were you colder than this for me, my mother? And he wept bitterly. The boy saw what kind of love that he received from his mother. He experienced it on, on by her graveside. That it was great love, truly, like Miss Watson said over and over to him growing up, that she sacrificed herself to give him life. You see, on the cross, Jesus also took off his clothes, took the shame, took the pain, because he wanted to give us life. Because he had the motherly, fatherly love towards us. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense why he would do that. Crucifixion doesn't make sense. But it was love. The loving sacrifice. Lastly, the loving offer. So in light of this great accomplishment Jesus has done for us, now look in the story portrays for us how people respond to Jesus. And there are many characters that uh, Luke points out. Uh, some, some of them we already saw, the Jewish rulers and Roman soldiers you know, mocking him. And we also will see in the rest of the story that, that there's a crowd being very just ambivalent. They're just watching what's happening, and, you know, and later some of them feel sorry for Jesus. But there's no more progress. And we also see, lastly, the Roman centurion, you know, him praising God uh, because he saw the, you know, signs of temple curtain being torn in two. But he stops there. But there's one person in the story who stands out in his response to Jesus. And that person is one of the criminals on the cross. So we read verses 39 through 42. It says, 
One of the criminals who, who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. So there, uh, you know, one of the criminals on the cross, you know, after his friend you know, mocking Jesus and you know, really disrespecting Jesus with his blasphemy, the other criminal on the cross, he apparently starts to understand what Jesus says, that he's the Messiah who came to die for his people. And he, he, when he realized that, he you know, first acknowledged his sins. That's what he did in verse 30, 39 there. Or, or uh, rather, verse 40. You know, when, when he said that you know, he deserves to be hung on the cross. You know, him and his friend, they deserve this punishment. They deserve this shame because, their sin, because of their you know, you know, criminal history. So what he's doing there is that he doesn't just blame. He's acknowledging humbly that he is a sinner deserving of the punishment that he's receiving right now. He's even repenting. And then he goes on in verse 42. He shamelessly turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's demanding even Jesus, that he be part of his kingdom in the future. Shameless. And, and there, another thing I need you to notice is that the, the criminal directly calls the name of Jesus, right? He doesn't say, Lord, or, you know, remember me, just plainly like that, but he actually calls his name, Jesus, remember me. What that means is, He's relating to Jesus as a person, on a personal level. Jesus is not a concept. He's not a formula, but he's a person that he relates to. This shows faith. He's trusting Jesus as a person. It's a true, genuine faith. And in verse 3, Jesus responds, Truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Because of the faith of the criminal, now Jesus applies what he's about to do on the cross. Namely that the criminal, though his sins are many, he's now covered with the garment of Christ. He's justified. And his sins are all gone. And instead of judgment to come, this criminal will be part of God's kingdom indeed. And the physical death that he's about to you know, experience on the cross is merely a transition into the, the presence of God in heaven. Now just think about that. Death is a transition. It's not an end. It's a transition into the bliss. And from there, this criminal will be awaiting the final resurrection. He received the hope of eternal life. He moved on from despair of judgment. 
And here, uh, I need you to notice this picture that Luke is portraying for us. Just imagine, just, uh, you know, think with me the, the picture of the criminal on the cross. You know, he's awaiting death right now, right? You know, there's nothing that he can do. He's literally bound, you know, by the nails. So he cannot save himself, you know, physically or spiritually. He's helpless. The only thing he can do is what he did. He called out to Jesus. And he asked Jesus to wipe away his sins. And he asked Jesus to give him the perfect righteousness that covers him. It's only faith that saved him. And it's only faith that saves all of us. Just like the criminal, we are bound by our sins. We cannot save ourselves. None of our good works and accomplishments, nothing that we boast in, can save us and make us right with God. It's only when we humble ourselves like he did, acknowledging our sins and see our helplessness and we put our trust in Jesus alone, that's when we are saved. In other words, Luke and Jesus and, and, and the whole scripture is calling us to receive rest in God's grace. Stop striving Receive this as a gift. Enjoy God. Enjoy your salvation by faith alone. Uh, recently, my, my parents uh, flew over here from uh, Georgia, and he, he, they stayed with us for a few weeks. And uh, they were here because we had to ask them uh, to come over uh, because we're Having a very busy few weeks, uh, and me and my wife, and uh, we really needed help. So we called them, and you know, thankfully they flew over right away, pretty much. You know, they found a you know cheap plane ticket. You know, uh, Spirit this specific. You know, they kind of suffered a little bit, but you know, it was a good good price. You know, they came right away. And as soon as they got here, you know, they started doing everything for us. You know, they, they started cooking, they started cleaning, you know, they started organizing things. You know, our, our garage was pretty messy, but man, now it's clean, you know. It was awesome. And they literally did everything for us, and they, you know, sort of tried to take care of Seth. I say sort of because Seth kept running away from them, <laughs> uh, not, you know, being used to them. But anyways, they were, you know, doing everything for us pretty much. You know, so that, you know, my wife and I could focus on our work and ministry. And along the way, you know, I felt guilty, you know, because I was receiving so much and, you know, they're doing everything for us. So whenever I could take a break, I would, you know, go to them and try to do something for them and, you know, converse with them at least and help them out. But whenever I did that, you know, my parents would be like, what are you doing? You know, just, just go back. You know, you look really tired. Get some rest. You shouldn't be doing these things. And, uh, you know, I resisted, but then I realized that, you know, if, if I, you know, kept trying to help them and do things that they are trying to help us with, I, I think uh, I realized it, it would have 
dishonor them, right? Because it would have communicated to them inadvertently that maybe what they're doing is not really helpful or something like that. So I realized, man, I should just listen to them and get some rest. So I took that offer and, you know, I, I could actually get some rest that was much needed. And I remember during those weeks, I was refreshed and I could, you know, have more energy for, you know, ministry and all other things afterwards. To me, the lesson was that, you know, in relating to my parents, uh, my job really is to receive. Receive their love and receive um, what they do for me and my wife graciously. And, and that's exactly how it should be with God. You know, Jesus accomplished everything on the cross for us. You know, it's not in the Luke's, Luke's gospel, but in other gospels, it says, it is finished. He did every single thing for us. We cannot do what he did. And in fact, if we try to do what he did, you know, we will be dishonoring him, you know, saying that what he did is not enough. In relating to Jesus, you know, just like me with my parents and just like the criminal on the cross, our job is to receive. Our job is to receive his love that covers us. Receive his grace. Only then we can rest in him and only then we can focus on what's really important, which is living for God, right? Only when we receive from God, we can live a life that is worthwhile. God is calling us, please receive, rest in me. When you fail, come back to me, I'll give you grace. When you fall, when you feel ashamed, I'll cover you. I'll be ashamed for you. Receive, rest in me. Receive my love. And that is, in fact, my prayer for our church this weekend, that we will receive God's love and grace as we you know, go through tonight um, and you know, go through Easter service and dinner and all other interactions that we will have with one another, that we will receive, enjoy the feast of God's grace. It's not in our place to conjure up anything, but it is His love that He wants us to receive. So that after this weekend, you know, we will you know, come out of this weekend more refreshed, more fueled. Perhaps for some of us, you know, finish your taxes after this weekend, but all others that we will have his power to live a life that is victorious. And that all starts with us receiving the abundance of his grace and his love. Let's pray for us.
spend some time in silent prayers. Um, I think it's really good for us to pause and remember. I don't know where you are in your journey with God. Maybe for some of us, we've been walking with Jesus for a while. For others of us, you know, you are you barely started. And for others of us, maybe you are really new to the faith, or you know, you are still seeking, you are still trying to understand Christianity. And by the way, we welcome you if you are. Um, in that place. But wherever you are, let's meditate together. Let's pause and remember together what cross is. We start from judgment. I know it's not the pleasant place to start, but that's where Jesus started. Because he wants us to know where we should be saved from. We are helpless apart from him. But even more marvelous, Jesus took that punishment that we deserve. That terrible, excruciating punishment that he foretold of, he took it. bearing the shame on the cross, literally stripped naked so we would be covered. And now he's telling us to rest in him, trust in him, saying, you know, I got it for you. You see that criminal on the cross? He could do nothing You don't have to do anything. Just trust in me. Receive from me. And let's live a new life together by my strength. So let's meditate together um, on that truth. We're going to sing a song to uh, process together. Uh, but Even before we do that, uh, let's spend some time in silence just um, feasting, diving into God's grace for us. Let's pray. Let's take this time to uh, apply that to ourselves, that this is for me, that It is my salvation that he poured out his blood for me, his precious blood on the cross out of sheer love for me. Um, You know, I think, I've been thinking a lot about uh, the truth of how we need to be loved Um, here's what I mean Um, 
you know, I learned that um, whenever John in his gospel says, he calls himself in his, in his book, the one that Jesus loved. And at first I was like, man, he's being so conceited. Like, well, why is he calling himself that? But then I realized that I learned from um, you know, my professors and um, just been learning why that's the case. And it's because the more we grow in our Christian lives, the more we realize how loved we are. That's why John was calling himself that. And, and I realized that um, people who have been hurt um, are you know, easily hurting others. I've been observing that um, and I've been convinced that man, how we as a generation, as a church, as individuals, as a nation, have to learn how to receive God's love for us. Perhaps all the problems that we are facing in our culture is because we are not feeling loved. But only when we're convinced through the cross that we are utterly loved to the, to the effect that you know, Paul in Ephesians 3 says, we got to know how high, how deep, how wide, how long His love for us is in Christ Jesus. So could we ask God that right now? That this cross, you know, His sacrifice is for me. Lord, help me to be convinced by You. Lord, help me to live out this love that You give for me. Fill my heart with this real love that you have for me. Can we pray that? And I'll close for us after. Heavenly Father, um, that is our prayer that you would open up our hearts um, and, and teach us how to receive your love, how to be moved by your great love for us, love that is otherworldly. It is not based on our merits, it is based on your own covenant love towards us. It is steadfast. It's not moved by my failures, my good days or bad days. For you love us constantly. And we see that we're reminded of that as we survey the cross today. That Jesus Christ demonstrates his great love for us in that while we're still sinners, He died for us. So may you fill our hearts and may you truly use this weekend to awaken our hearts to your love, to your gospel. God, and we, we live in freedom, God, from that place. We live in freedom. Change us, mold us, mold our hearts towards you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus Christ. May your spirit help our hearts.